Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 15. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Today, I have chapter 14 of Outcast for you. As always, I'm cross-posting this episode on the original Outcast podcast feed, and if you're listening to this show there, then I encourage you to subscribe to the new show either on podchaser.com or at the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. But for now, let's get on with Chapter 14 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 14 The Beast Walkers The Lautari The Man-Beast I'm sure they have even more names, and many of them far less flattering. I remember some of my clan friends telling me that their parents would use them as a threat against acting up. Careful, child. Behave, or a Beast Walker will take you in the night. For any child of the clans... Such a threat was usually enough to keep them in line. Every religion on Bengalus, be it the patrons or even the gods of old, describes them as fallen beings. Warriors who lost their way or who'd willingly sold their souls to the Dark One in order to win a battle or accomplish some heroic deed. Depending on which patron you follow, the story of how a Lautari tempts you is different. For the blood followers of Chusu, it's the lure of purification of their blood. For those who follow Nathal, the patron of nature, it's the promise of fully becoming one with the green. My former clan's patron is Kaon, the patron of family. In our parables, the Lautari tempt us with the ability to overcome any adversity so we can save our families or rejoin them. Of course, the result is never a happy one. The family often exiles or even executes the person once they learn what their member has become. Instilling that fear was a diabolically genius way to keep the faithful in line. I never really asked Taki's opinion on the Lautari, or what the Tanayan tribes thought of them. I imagined it was like the beliefs of the clans, though. At the time, I never considered her views on them all that important. She was going to leave in a few days once the Theris fever treatment was over. Better to have her leave as an acquaintance than as someone who feared me. However, after that first night together, so much had changed, hadn't it? She was no longer just someone who needed help. Was I reading too much into it? Her kisses were passionate, but was it genuine? I wanted to think so, but maybe it was just my hormones talking. Hells. It could very well be that I was helping her scratch an itch until she could safely venture out and find someone older. Maybe she already had someone, and would run to him once she knew she could without falling ill again. I was falling in love with her, but was she with me? These conflicting feelings did little to help me during my next week of work. I didn't have much in the way of downtime to really process what I was feeling, though. Between learning new jobs at the docks, getting beaten to a pulp in training, and caring for Taki, 
It felt like the only time I had a chance to breathe was when I finally fell asleep at the end of the day. Add to all this the growing conflict between my growing love for her and the inevitable day when she no longer needed the medicine, and it became clear that I was a cub with the weight of a galaxy on his shoulders. I was still on day shift at the docks, which in truth suited me just fine. Rumors abounded how exiles seemed more prone to end their lives during the swing and night shifts, when security and other forms of supervision were minimal at best. As it was, Shariah told me three more exiles took their own lives over on the spaceport side of the operation during that second week. One of them walked into a reactor's maintenance chamber just as it was coming back online, giving him only a minute or two before the heat and radiation reduced his body to sludge. Before what happened to the ocelot, I would have figured it to be a genuine suicide. Now, however, I wasn't so sure. Maybe it was my own paranoia about my situation, but upon hearing about the death of another exile, I noticed a few of my co-workers sharing a kind of smile or some other gesture. The thought that there was a gang at the docks, singling out and executing exiles in the guise of suicide sent a chill up my spine. It was hard to concentrate on doing my job, realizing that at any moment someone could yell, EXILE! and that would be it. Gods. I would have been better off working around a group of Shatlia. At least around them, I knew who I could and couldn't trust. If the thought of potential exposure as an exile was bad, constant accidental exposure to Shariya was worse. I didn't know if she was in a perpetual state of heat, but I swear she'd seen me in the fur more than my own mother. She always had a way of showing up just as I was either coming out of the showers or as I was changing at the end of my shift. Originally, I thought my initial rejection of her sent a clear enough message, but she seemed determined to bed me as I was to avoid her. From the few co-workers I felt comfortable around, I'd learned that Shariah had the sex drive of the perfect Rondoki breeder. The small white mark on her muzzle was the only thing that kept her from their clutches. I was one of very few who'd resisted her advances thus far, which made me want to keep it up. Granted, she could have probably taught me a thing or two about the art of mating, but I refused to be just another notch in her bedpost. Despite my growing worry over discovery, I still managed to impress Alistair with my work. By midweek, I was piloting a boat solo to check on the navigation boys out on the water, and the McCavy's inspection crews were happy with my skill as I escorted them around the hull of their ship. My enhanced strength made quick work of any assigned physical tasks, and I did my best to maintain a cheerful outlook around everyone. From the mutterings of the others on the docks, those deemed exiles were easy to spot once you knew what to look for. Most of them were listless, depressed individuals who didn't seem to give a damn about the job they were doing. So long as I didn't fall into that kind of rut, I figured my secret would be safe. While the job at the docks seemed to be improving, my training with Krasa seemed to be going in the opposite direction. Now that he knew my physical limits, that old tiger seemed determined to push me past them every time we met. For my first two training sessions that week, he subjected me to a barrage of weight and cardiovascular training before learning anything about the art itself. Even then, what he was teaching me seemed basic when compared to what I'd learned as a clansman. Now, when I say basic, 
I mean the moves of a Lautari were mostly devoid of choreography or flair. Media companies looking to exploit a fighting style for a movie or a weekly series would most certainly not use this one. However, what it lacked in style, the art more than made up for in effectiveness. One might not build a successful action star career with this fighting style, but guaranteed they'd never lose a fight. I mean, let's face it. A martial art is no sport, at least not at its root. It's combat, pure and simple. It's you against someone else. Whether you win or lose depends on three crucial things. How well you can read your opponent, how hard you can hit, and, most importantly, how hard you can take a hit. That third point was something I think Krasa reveled in testing. After a warm-up routine, I would go through the forms he taught me and did my best to transition from one to the other as smoothly as I could. I performed these transitions slowly so Krasa could point out any errors. It was frustrating since each time I tried, he would have something to say. Still, I stifled any complaints and merely reset myself so I could try again. The final bit of each lesson was a hollow sparring session. I was to go up against ten opponents of varying lineages and fighting styles, expected to use what I'd learned to both defend myself and prevail. The hollow projector he used could create an unlimited array of opponents, from street thugs to warrior elite. I know, it doesn't sound like much, except what these hollow projectors, well, projected, was as solid as flesh and bone. Any blows they landed on me were both real and painful. Krasa wasted little time ramping me up when it came to combat training. I would get one, maybe two opponents that were easy enough to beat, but after that, things got brutal. Time and again I would attack, trying to land even a glancing blow against my opponent, and time and again I'd be beaten down with a precision so fine that it made me wonder why I was doing this in the first place. For his part, my new master offered very little in the way of guidance during these sessions. He'd simply point out what I did wrong, reset the hollow projector, and then wait for me to get back to my feet before uttering one simple word. Again. And with that word, my humiliation would continue until I felt like one giant bruise from head to toe. Grandfather always told me that anger in combat solved nothing except to speed your own demise, but it was growing more and more difficult to not let that simmering rage inside me explode. This wasn't the movies. There was no moment where I would suddenly scream out as some otherworldly power filled me and I obliterated all my opponents with one swift stroke. Some days, reality really sucked. Regardless of how my day ended, and despite my growing anxiety over the end of the week, returning to my dwelling was still the highlight of my day because of her. I couldn't explain it, but just knowing that she was there at the end of it all made any pain or paranoia worth it. She was always there with open arms and deep, wet kisses the moment I opened that door, and on warmer nights we would sit outside, wrapped around each other and either gazing up at the stars or staring blankly at the wilderness that surrounded us. When night finally did come, we would lie together and hold each other until sleep claimed us. Some nights we would merely hold each other, while others we would kiss, stroke, and tease each other's bodies, 
but always we denied ourselves that last act of consummation. To her, I think it became a bit of a game. How far could we go before we went too far, or before her nightly medicine dose kicked in? It was tantalizing and frustrating at the same time, but it always ended the same. She would fall asleep in my arms, and just before I closed my eyes, I would kiss her forehead softly and whisper gently into her ear, I love you, before closing my eyes and letting sleep overtake me. Overall, the second week of my exile had started off well. I just wish it had stayed that way. My vision was still spotty when I heard Krasa give his usual minimal sign that the night was over. That is all. I struggled to get to my feet, my jaw feeling like the last punch it received dislocated it. The holographic opponent, a female cheetah, was just dissolving as he shut the projector down. I had gone my usual ten rounds, but only scored two victories. I'd like to think for the rest that I gave as good as I got, but in the end, I was the one lying on the mat. Your technique is improving, he said. You are still far too eager to exploit an opening, though, which in turn exposes you to a counter. With a wave of his hand, he bid me to kneel opposite him. Anger still drives you, Dallin. Anger and, I expect, ambition. Your mind is on the end of the fight even before you start. If you maintain this vision, you will lose every conflict. I nodded, trying to catch my breath. There was no point in arguing with him because I knew he was right. All I could see when I stepped into that combat circle was myself standing on four legs, fully transformed, and roaring my triumph to the patrons above. Such delusions of grandeur, however, made it difficult to focus on the opponents before me, and only rarely was I able to fully recall any training. Like a fish going after shiny bait, I fell every time for what looked like an opening. This weekend will be our first retreat, he continued. Bring bedding and enough clothing to last the weekend. We rose and started putting away the training equipment. I knew this was coming. I'd spent all week working up the courage to talk to Teki about all this, but even now at the end I was nowhere near ready. Every time I worked up the courage to tell her, all it took was one kiss or delicious caress, and my mind instantly decided it would be future Dallin's problem. Now, though, there was no more future Dallin to slough this off onto. I had to tell her, and deal with the consequences. Is there a problem? Krasa asked. His voice was bereft of any emotion. I realized I'd stopped in the middle of carrying one of the practice mats. I, uh, uh no, no problem at all, I said, quickly refocusing myself on helping with the cleanup. Krasa knew nothing of Teki and the fact that I was caring for someone. I reasoned that he didn't need to know, so long as it didn't impede my training. He was my teacher, not my father. When our time was over, we would part ways, and no doubt he'd seek out another exile to make the same offer that he made me. It sounds cold, I know, but he gave no hint that he was interested in any other facet of my life. To him, I was just a student, nothing more. Up until that first kiss, Teki had been the same, just a temporary event in my life. My only goal was to make sure she was well at which point she was free to do what she wanted. 
Given her initial opinion of me, I figured she was itching to get out of the dwelling and get back to her life. In time, we'd forget about each other, and maybe occasionally cross paths at the warehouse. Maybe there'd be the exchange of pleasantries, and we'd leave it at that. Now, things were different. Oh, gods, were they different. Once we put everything away, I bid Cross a good night and headed out of the studio. I summoned a transport and made sure to select single occupant only. I wasn't really in the mood to talk to some random stranger, much less potentially run into a clansman. In fact, I really wasn't in the mood to talk to anyone, even Teki if I was being honest. I felt like a cub heading to the headmaster's office at school to confess to a prank or something. It was unavoidable, and the fact that I'd put it off for so long only added to my anxiety. I stepped off the transport at my home designation and sighed. It was still warm out and my body still ached. Knowing about the heating stones in that pool had me dreaming of taking a nice long soak in it, letting the warmth ease the pain. Alas, with Teki still there, and with neither of us owning any swimwear, it would have been selfish to leave her alone while I enjoyed such a luxury. Maybe after she was gone, I could take more advantage of it. A long hot soak after getting the tar beaten out of me would almost make the ordeal worth it. After she was gone. But I didn't want her to leave. Each step took me closer to the inevitable. My heart sank as I thought about my upcoming confession. Would she feel betrayed? Would she run right then, realizing that I was in league with demons? Did her tribe have some right meant to purge the evil from the Lautari? I snickered at that one. I was fairly sure there was no holy water around. Still, not having brought the subject up for this long only meant that she was about to be hit by what my friend Max would call one hell of a truth bomb. The dwelling finally came into view. I grit my teeth and began mentally preparing myself for what was about to happen. I practiced my lines in my head over and over, as if auditioning for a play. When I reached the door, I drew in a breath and pushed it open. Taki looked up from what she was doing, and her smile made me forget everything I was going to say. She greeted me, and then collected me into her arms. I resigned myself and wrapped my own tired arms around her. Our muzzles met, and I remember thinking only one thing. Sorry, future Dallin. I've got something else to deal with now. The next morning, we awakened the same way we had all week, namely with her in my arms. Like every morning, her scent was the first thing I took in, followed by her warm body next to mine. My ears picked up her gentle, soft purring, and my whiskers could taste the calm bliss she felt as she slowly awakened. Her smile, so warm and loving, this morning only brought a tear to my eye. As much as I wanted to stay strong, knowing that this could be my last day with her was heartbreaking. What's wrong? she asked as we disentangled ourselves. I sighed and leaned my head back. This was it. I couldn't put this off any longer. Teki, I said. Do you know anything about the Lautari? The what? Um, the Beast Walkers, or Man be I heard her gasp and I looked at her. 
Her eyes had gone wide and I felt her tense. That told me everything. I guess you have, I said. Taki, a few days before all this, I met one. You did? I nodded slowly. And he made you the offer? Another nod. Realization dawned on her, and the look on her muzzle was something that nearly broke my heart. Thankfully, she didn't jump up and run screaming, but her normally affectionate attitude had cooled off completely. She rose from our bed and set about preparing something for us to eat. With a sigh, I also rose and began rolling up my sealer mat. What are you doing? she asked. Her voice had returned to the neutral, cool tone I heard when we first met. I guess that pretty much confirmed some of my earlier suspicions. It seemed I meant nothing to her. I won't be home tonight, I said, keeping my own tone neutral. Part of the training is a retreat every other weekend. My mat rolled up. I then set about getting a few shirts and other bits of clothing together before dressing. I blinked back a few tears, fully realizing that this would be the last time I ever saw her. I suppose that if it was any consolation, I at least had a few days of happiness with her. Maybe those memories would keep me warm on all the cold nights. Packed and dressed, I sat opposite Tiki and ate the breakfast she prepared. It was nothing special, just enough to get me through the morning. We ate in silence for the first time since that episode in the woods. It was deafening. I didn't know what else to say, though. Should I apologize to her? Should I reassure her that I wasn't going to lose my soul to some feral demon? Should I tell her I loved her? The last question made me pause in my eating. In fact, it made me lose my appetite. I put down my bowl and stood up. She said nothing as I moved for the door, pausing only to put my shoes on. I turned to her, only to see that she had stood up too, and she was looking at me warily. Taki, I said. I'm sorry I didn't tell you sooner, but I was scared that you'd run before you were well. She said nothing. You're welcome to stay here, I continued. You're still sick and will be until you finish the treatment. I nodded towards the nearly empty bucket. If you want to leave, I said, then at least finish the tea and be well again. After that, your life is yours again to do with as you wish. I managed a small smile, hoping to elicit a response. However, she said nothing as I opened the door. We shared one last look before I turned away and left her alone. Thankfully, the day passed by in a blur. I didn't want to think about the morning and what I had done. I threw myself into my work and refused to slow down. Slowing down meant I would have time to think, and having time to think would force me to confront the fact that I royally messed up. If only I'd called in sick and spent time with her. Maybe then I could have salvaged something out of this mistake. It was clear to me that she never felt the same way toward me that I was feeling toward her. But all things considered, I would have at least liked to be friends with her. By the end of my shift, I was too mentally exhausted to even deal with Shariah. As usual, she flirted with me as I was changing, but instead of playing along, I ignored a large part of her little act. I think she took it as a sign that my resolve was failing. 
The only thing that was failing, though, was my patience for her. I'd already blown one chance at intimacy with someone. I wasn't ready for another. I was extremely happy to finish my work day, but began to dread what was coming next. When I arrived at the dance studio, Krasa was already standing outside a skimmer, the trunk ready for whatever I'd packed. Reluctantly, I threw my knapsack and sealamat in before climbing into the passenger seat. I'd barely closed the door before we were moving. The oncoming night seemed to swallow us as we left the lights and modernity of Kerala City behind. All I saw in front of us was whatever the headlights revealed, which admittedly wasn't a lot. Before long, the road on which we traveled narrowed to a single lane going in each direction. The last time I saw a road like this was the one leading up to my former home. I don't know how long we drove. I could have checked the time on my ID card, but I feared Krasa would see it as an insult. For centuries, our world benefited from portable technology, but society still deemed it rude to bury oneself in it while in the presence of others. Rather than reach for it just to check the time, I continued to gaze out into the darkness. We finally stopped, and Krasa bid me to get out. I grabbed my things and followed him down a narrow path in the woods. I was relieved that he'd at least brought a flashlight with him. Tired as I was, had I to rely solely on my night vision to navigate this path, I would have stumbled around like a drunk for most of the way. Eventually, the path opened into a clearing. I could make out the shape of a modest cabin of sorts off to one corner, a fire pit, and a shed. That was all I could see in the night. I finally took a moment to appreciate where I was. The air was cool and crisp, and bereft of the smells of the city. Instead, it was thick with the fragrance of nature. From the trees and flowers to the clean water of a nearby stream, it was a perfect getaway. This was the kind of place many city-goers flocked to when on vacation. Leave your things by the door, Krasa said. Then join me. I did, reminding myself that this was no vacation. This was part of my training. By the time I reached the fire pit, he was already seated and tending the beginnings of a fire. I sat opposite him and watched as the fire built in heat and light. Soon, the light from the fire was bright enough that it blacked out everything around me except my teacher. In this city, he said, I can teach you to fight like a Lautari. But in this place is where you will learn to be a Lautari. He looked away from the fire for a moment. We are all creatures of nature, Dallin. No matter how much we may deny it, we are only a few steps ahead of the creatures that came before us. We mask our true selves with things like skimmers, buildings of concrete and steel, and electronic toys to make our lives easier. But take all that away, and we are little more than two-legged versions of our four-legged brothers. I suddenly looked around, wondering if one of those four-legged brothers was out there now, watching us. Strong as I was, the thought of having to deal with a feral was still unsettling, to say the least. Fear not, he said. It is too early in the season for them to be this high. And they will leave us be, so long as we do not provoke them. I nodded and returned my gaze to the fire. You have many questions, he said, looking right at me. And they will be answered in time. But for now, 
You must answer my question. Why are you here? I opened my mouth to reply, but then stopped. Why was I here? Why did I decide to come up here in the middle of God's nowhere to spend the next three days undoubtedly getting my backside handed to me in wave after wave of sparring matches when I could have blown him off and spent my coming of age in the arms of someone I'd probably never see again? Was I that insane or that willing to commit myself to something that would forever mark me as an outcast, even if I did regain my honor? I, I'm here to learn, I finally said. I'm here to learn to be a Lautari. Why? To fight, I said. And find those who stole the Kalpak and... Avenge yourself? I stopped again. Vengeance? Was I even old enough to consider something like that? Normally, cubs my age are more interested in their favorite toys and playing with their friends. And here I was, actively seeking to hunt down those four thieves and repay them in kind for what they did to me. Had this become my life? Had my becoming an exile damned me to such a path? It was a rotten thought, but it also made sense. Exiles were the kind of people forced to grow up quickly lest they fall prey to anyone willing to take their lives. Kill or be killed, that was the way of the exile. It seemed I was indeed on the path to vengeance, so I nodded in reply. By this time, the fire had died down a bit. It was low and warm, the kind one could easily use for cooking or as a backdrop for something a little more intimate. It would have been by a fire like this, I think, that Taki and I would have finally made love had I not come up here. No doubt she thought me a servant of the Dark One now and would be gone before I returned. I just hoped she took my advice and finished her treatment. So, said Krasa finally, you wish to fight for vengeance. You'd like to face your attackers and tear them apart in a fit of blind rage? I nodded, though I couldn't really wrap my head around that last bit. It's one thing to throw a punch at someone. It's quite something else to rip out one's windpipe and watch as your opponent gasps for breath as he or she drowns in their own blood. Still, this was what I'd agreed to, so I merely nodded again. I see, he said. Then tell me, what do you see before you? I looked for a moment, and then answered him. I see a low fire. This fire, he said, is a soul, Dallin. Tranquil, warm, and serene. Suddenly, his hand moved over the fire, but before I could ask what he was doing, the fire seemed to explode before me. What had been an ideal cooking fire had suddenly turned into an immense white fireball that would have singed me had I not rolled away. When I looked back, I saw that the fireball had dissipated, and the fire had returned to its former state. I don't know if my eyes were still adjusting, but the fire seemed dimmer somehow. What was that? I asked. That was rage, he said. And this is vengeance. He moved his hand over the fire again, and this time I saw him drop something into it. Again, the low fire erupted into an immense fireball, which disappeared almost as quickly as it had appeared. As before, when the fireball faded, the fire seemed even weaker than before. 
Rage and vengeance burn brightly, he said. They also burn hot, filling your body with what you need to accomplish your goal. But here, he nodded to the fire, you can see the consequences of such an act. A soul cannot live only for vengeance, Stalin. With nothing else to fuel it, a soul bent only on vengeance will simply die once its vengeance is complete. Then what fuels the soul? I asked. What do you miss most about your former life? He countered. What things make your exile nearly unbearable? It wasn't a hard question to answer. I miss my family, I said. Not my name or clanship, just them. I miss the sounds of them being around. I miss those evenings when we'd all gather around the fire with cups of hot chakrala and listen while Grandfather told stories of the old times. I miss just being around my family and friends. Those are what fuel the soul, Dallin, he said. Above all things, family fuels the soul the most. It matters not what patron one follows, or what their dogma demands of you. Family and love are what give the soul that much-needed fuel to not only survive, but endure those few times when rage and vengeance are necessary. The stronger your soul is, the better you'll weather the storm. So, my reason, I began. My quest isn't for vengeance. It's for family. My quest is for family. Krasa nodded, and then he did something I never thought I'd see him do. He smiled. And that's our story. Dallin was born many years ago as a character for a tabletop role-playing game. I come from a small town where resources for things like Dungeons & Dragons or other role-playing games were hard to come by, and we would often send money with friends who were going to the big city in order to get the things we wanted. Also, at the time, tabletop role-playing games were still fairly new on the market, so instead of actually finding a science fiction-based role-playing game, my friends and I actually created our own. The Vanity in Me considered it a bit of a sci-fi smackdown, which I know used to be a podcast or a feature on another podcast at some point. But it was an amalgamation of all of our favorite sci-fi TV shows, movies, and other things, all wrapped together into one great big world that we all just had a blast in. During that time, though, that's when I caught the writing bug, thanks mostly to reading the first three Dragonlance Chronicles books by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman as well as several books of Don Pendleton, namely the Mac Bolan and Able Team series. The scene in the last chapter of Outcast with the fire and the whole My Quest is for Family line actually came from the first Dallin story I ever wrote, in which he was off-world being a galactic badass. The bit about the fire was a flashback to help him focus on why he was fighting against all the bad guys out there, and I always smile when I think about how long I've carried that little scene with me. As for writing this week, unfortunately, it kind of came in fits and spurts. I was still able to get some done, though it was still in more of the outline format. I mean, it counts, though, since it all contributes to the finished product. 
I also sent an outline of another project to my wonderful beta reader and trusted critic to see what she thinks about the idea. I also did some more checking into where Outcast goes from here. Once the re-recording is done and I'm satisfied with the quality of the audio, I do want to get it out there and make it available not just to the podcast audience, but to anyone who enjoys audiobooks. I had all these dreams of getting it on Audible, but from what I can see, that requires going through something called ACX. Now, I did a bit of reading up on submission guidelines, and from what I could see, it looks like the book has to exist physically before any audio can be submitted for review. I'm an unknown in the literary world, so approaching even a small print publisher out of the blue might not be that easy. I'm considering instead approaching Scribbler, which is the evolution of Podiobooks.com when this is done, and see what my chances are there. I mean, it'll be a start at least. And if I can get enough of a following going, maybe I can use that proof to show a publisher that I'm worth the risk. That, admittedly, is a bit of a ways off. First, I have to get the rest of the audio done and out to all of you who are listening. I mean, you are my top priority. Anyways, I think I'll end it there for now. As always, thank you for tuning in. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com or leave an audio feedback via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.